All right, we've had, um, uh, have you found this, this uh, series of lectures, this rather lengthy series of lectures on the parable of the sower helpful? Good, I, I'm delighted to hear that. Um, and we, we have taken our time, but, but I, I believe there are some crucial um, lessons in the parable of the sower. And so we've taken our time in, in working through that. Uh, let's return there this evening, please, to Mark, the fourth chapter. Father, thank you for your uh, Holy Spirit that you've given us, that he's here to teach us, to reveal to us Jesus Christ. And I pray that we experience that ministry tonight, that tonight we have an encounter with Jesus Christ. We learn of him, but we learn from him, and we experience him. I pray that um, we're able to turn over to you tonight any concerns or cares we've arrived here with, release them into your care, and turn our attention and our hearts toward you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mark, the fourth chapter, I think one of the, one of the things that I really wanted to make plain was that uh, I've actually discovered uh, over the years that some Christians read the parable of the sower with real concern as if they're going to discover they're one of those types of ground that simply doesn't bear fruit. And when we work through the parable of the sower, I think it's important to remember, first of all, that, that I, I do believe that it's quite possible for these types of ground to coexist in our hearts. There are some arenas in which we find it easy to embrace the Word of God, to trust in it wholly, and to allow it to bring forth fruit. Then there are other areas in which we struggle. We hear the Word of God, we read it, but it may be, um, there may be uh, pain in our lives. Some event has occurred in our past, and for whatever reason, we struggle to receive God's word in certain areas. Or again, it may be the, the effect of, of ideas we've embraced over the years, which really aren't consistent with what's actually written in the word of God. And those, those can be the doctrines of men, the traditions of men, things that are well-intentioned, but again, are not entirely consistent with uh, what's actually written in the Word of God. And so they can create roadblocks for us. But there's no fate accompli. Uh, we read this to discover, to sort of diagnose where, uh, where we may be struggling. And we are attentive to the remedies that Jesus points to in the parable of the sower so that we can move beyond those roadblocks and God's word can become fruitful in our lives. Mark 4, uh, we've worked through this at length. We, we uh, finally arrived at verse 20 last week. These are the ones on whom seed was sown on the good soil. And they hear the word and accept it or hold fast to it and bear fruit 30, 60, and 100. So there are there, there are two imperatives here, and we hear the word, or rather we read the word here on each occasion Jesus introduces a new 
type of heart, a new sort of soil. And in the first three occasions, it's, um, the verb is past tense, aorist. It suggests a single final act, uh, uh, something that corresponds to just casually hearing the word, casually listening to the word. This uh, final word uh, here, as it's written in verse 20, is, it is present tense, and it suggests an ongoing, continual, persistent effort in hearing and in holding fast to the Word. And for the last couple of weeks, Don was my, my assistant here. And, uh, you know, he, he grabbed my notebook. And the first week, he nearly <laughs> wrenched it out of my hand and pulled me over the first aisle. <laughs> um, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an important visual, I think. When we hear the Word of God, Jesus said, Satan comes to steal away. He comes immediately to steal away the Word. And it really is imperative that we bear that in mind. Each time we hear the Word of God, Satan comes to steal it. Now, initially, he comes through argument. Just human reasoning. Something that would lead us to believe that uh, either we should dismiss this out of hand or, or rationalize the uh, power out of that promise. Uh, just sort of rationalize it away so that its impact is minimal on our lives. But many uh, will hold fast to that word beyond that moment. But then a series of distractions. Satan escalates his assaults in his effort to strip away the word. Because after all, it is the word which he so fears. It is the word, Paul said in Romans 1.16, that is the power of God unto salvation. And so he wishes to mitigate its effect. If he's unable to steal it, then he wants to mitigate its effect, its impact, in our lives. And so he does that through this a series of escalating assaults, um, which would either find us abandoning the word or in this third category of heart, simply becoming distracted so that we don't abandon the word. It remains intact in our lives. It simply um, is unable to yield fruit. And then finally, there are those who hear the word and they continue hearing it. Which is, is what Jesus said, recall, in John eight thirty one and 32. Then said Jesus to those Jews who believed on him, continue ye in my word. Then you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. Satan wants very much to prevent liberty from being experienced in our lives. Is that me? Um, and so he wants to, at the very least, distract us so that the reality that is God, the reality that is his kingdom, becomes so remote in our consciousness and in our lives that it enjoys little bearing and effect on our choices, on our perspective, and on the circumstances of our lives. So this man or this woman hears the word and they keep on hearing it. They turn to it regularly. They ponder it. They, they uh, obey Paul's counsel in Colossians 3. I think it's verse 2. 
They set their mind on things above, not on things on the earth, which ironically is something we've, many Christians have been counseled against. Have you ever heard the, the maxim, you can be too heavenly minded to be any earthly good? I find the opposite to be true, frankly. We are generally too earthly minded to be much heavenly good. So we want to keep our attention on the reality that is God. It's not suggesting we are turning our attention to some imaginary celestial city. But we are literally turning our thoughts toward the reality that is the invisible God and is His invisible kingdom to the degree that it enjoys real impact in our approach to life. And then we hold fast to that word that we are pondering in our heart, that we are continuing in because Satan is coming to steal it away. And so we hold, accept here is literally hold fast. We are holding fast to that word. This becomes particularly important when you are laying hold of a promise. Um, These promises are given to us to receive. All of the promises of God, Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, are yes. And in him, amen. So be it, Lord. These promises are to be received. And once received, held fast to. And it's very, very difficult to do that if you're not continuing in that world or in that word, because the reality that is God, that is His kingdom, um, if if that vision um, and that sense of nearness is allowed to diminish in your life, it becomes so remote that it seems less real. And often, our minds and our faith are simply overwhelmed by the, by the apparent reality of the challenges that we're enduring. And we simply turn away. We stop believing. Peter fell into that trap when he had ventured out of the boat and walked on the water. You recall Jesus came walking on the water to them in the midst of a storm. And they were, they were terribly frightened. They thought it was a spirit. And Jesus said, take it easy. It's me. And Peter said, Lord, if it's you, then ask me to come to you on the water. And Jesus said, come on. I think Jesus is excited when we are willing to lay aside and abandon conventional means and methods. And place our trust entirely in Him. And so Peter got out of the boat. And he was walking on the water. Now, he wasn't actually walking on the water. We've discussed this, but I want to repeat it tonight. He wasn't actually walking on the water. He was walking on the Word. Water doesn't enjoy the physical properties that allow you to walk on it. It's a liquid and not a solid. So he was being upheld by the power of God's Word. Which means his faith needed to remain intact. In order for his faith to remain intact, he needed to allow his focus and his attention to remain fixed on the author and finisher or developer of our faith, the source of our faith, Jesus Christ. But it, 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 the writer of the Gospel explains that Peter's attention was diverted to the winds and the waves. 
and he began to sink. And every one of us knows that sinking feeling. We, we, uh, we come here on a Sunday morning. It's wonderful. We hear the word of God taught. And, and because we've collected together in Jesus' name, he gathers here together with us. So we're experiencing the presence of Jesus Christ, and it's wonderful. And nothing seems impossible in that environment. But we pass through those doors, and by Monday morning, when we're in the thick of life, it's amazing how distant and remote this can seem. And our attention slowly drifts from Christ to the challenges we're confronted with. And because our challenges have now captured our attention, they seem more real than the reality we were ensconced in Sunday morning. And our faith begins to ebb. You say, well, I, I, don't, I don't get it, Larry. Why? Is God uh, that thin-skinned? If I don't trust in Him, He just abandons me? No. Let's think about what happened. Peter was walking on the water. He was walking on the Word. The Word which Jesus had declared. Come. This was a faith venture. When he began to sink, Jesus didn't turn around and walk away. He reached out and grabbed him with his hand and kept him from drowning. And they returned to the boat. And what happened when they stepped into the boat? Does anyone recall? The storm abated. The storm will always end. The question is, where will you be when it ends? Out on the water with Jesus or back in the boat? I want to be out on the water. I'm so thankful for God's mercy. He will meet us uh, where he can, but I want to walk by faith because faith isn't simply satisfying the demands of an unreasonable God. Faith exists as an invitation God refuses to violate our autonomy. If he did, we would cease to be the unique creature that he created us to be. Fellowship with him on the level we enjoy would no longer be possible. We would be like automatons, not, not uh, humans created in his image and in his likeness. So he will not violate our autonomy. Faith is opening the door to God and saying, perform in my life. And in my circumstances, your promises, I believe. And he rushes in because, listen, he made those promises as an expression of his love. He gave Don the promise because he wants Don to receive it. It's not dangling it tantalizingly before us. Well, what do you think about that, Don? Maybe, maybe not. He made the promise so that Don can receive it, so that you can receive it, so I can receive it. But there's an interloper. We're not alone. You and I live um, in a world that Paul explained uh, has been intruded upon by a dark overlord who is actually the God of this world. He enjoys um, movement here and apparently exceptional power. He, he's, not, he's not without power. Jesus said, 
that a strong man will bind him. So faith opens the door to God, extends the invitation, Lord, do what you made the promise to do this thing that you yearn to do in my life. I'm opening the door wide. But faith also closes the door to the adversary. The psalmist in Psalm 8, I think verse 2, said it like this. And Jesus quoted it, I believe, in Matthew 21. Do you remember the children came and they were, they were um, uh, praising Jesus and, and uh, the Pharisees said, wait, well, what's going on? The religious leaders were ridiculing Jesus. For he said, have you never read out of the mouths of babes and sucklings? Thou hast ordained or perfected praise. The psalmist said ordained strength. And this strength, um, that praise or thanksgiving, which is just faith with a voice, uh, the reason it exists is in order to steal the enemy, to stop the devil in his tracks, to prevent him from laboring. But praise, as, as Jesus has expressed it and the psalmist expressed it, we find what real praise is. This is the, praise is the voice of faith. And it, is, uh, it, is, uh, the, the, it was illustrated by the psalmist with a unique metaphor. Out of the mouths of babes and sucklings. What is that the image of? It's a baby, obviously, but what's that the image of? You bring a newborn home from the hospital. It is utterly dependent and absolutely helpless. If you don't care for the baby, it will die. That's the picture of real faith, which is the rub of faith. That's why it's so challenging. To say, I trust God, is to abandon um, faith, trust, hope in anything else. And that's very difficult for us as humans. It's, it's rather like the, the old joke, the fellow tumbled over the side of a cliff, and as he was falling, he grabbed hold of a root that was protruding from the cliff. And he looked up, and it was 100 feet up to the cliff's edge, and a thousand feet below, and he cried out to God for help, and he heard a booming voice, God saying, I will rescue you. Let go of the root. The man thought for a few moments, and he cried out, is there anyone else up there? <laughs> we, we find it very difficult to trust wholly in God, but that is what real faith is. We, we, we place our trust entirely in him a babe and a suckling but when we do and our faith finds a voice through praise it shuts the door to the devil it opens the door to god and shuts the door to the devil so it's not as if we're trying to score brownie points with god we're trying to to convince him persuade him to do this thing or we make him promises in hopes of finagling a miracle God stands ready he is poised for action he yearns to do good 
but he is waiting for faith. This is why Jesus said over and over again in the Gospels when he was approached by someone in need, can you believe? Do you have faith? He wasn't satisfying some deep-seated ego need. He was simply saying, I can't work in the absence of faith. If I do, I will violate your autonomy, and, and I can't do that. He went, you, re, you call, he returned to Nazareth, his hometown. He could there do no mighty work, we read, because of their unbelief. And their unbelief was tethered to a notion uh, that suggested Jesus was less than the Messiah, less than the anointed one. He said, wait a minute. We know this guy. This is Jesus. He grew up around here. We know his dad. We know his mom. They struggled, and, and a lot of us struggle because our image of who Jesus is, either because we've been taught incorrectly or there's a great deal of ignorance that persists in our lives, it's very difficult for us to believe. It's more difficult, I think, for American Christians to receive, either because of our skepticism or because we've been taught incorrectly. We have an image of Jesus that says, sometimes he heals, sometimes he doesn't, or some have simply suggested he doesn't heal at all at this day and age. But you go overseas where people haven't been taught these things and they hear about a Jesus who loves them, who died for them and is ready to uh, heal them and they just eagerly and aggressively uh, embrace those promises and, and receive miracles. Okay, um, let's... Um, that was a long introduction. Especially since I should be concluding. Um, Okay, real quickly, uh, so we want to hear. That's the imperative. Well, what is it that we're hearing? It's important. Remember, in fact, let's, since we're here at Mark 4, let's look at verse 21 before we flip away from this. Verse 21, And he was saying to them, A lamp is not brought to be put under a basket, is it? Or under a bed. Is it not brought to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed. Now this is an image. Uh, the imagery here is, is uh, it's, the subject of this is the lamp, and, it's, and it is imagery that points to Jesus. And that's really important to think. When we are talking about understanding the Word or having a revelation of the Word of God, what we're talking about is having a revelation of Jesus. We're not just learning about Him. We're not learning facts about him. We are learning of him. We are encountering him. We're discovering Jesus more fully. And there is transforming power in that. Um, what is it? I think it's 1 John 3, 2. I'm not positive. But uh, speaking of the coming of Christ, John wrote, when we see him, we shall be like him. There is transforming power in Revelation. The more you and I see him, the clearer Jesus becomes to us. The more like him we become. There is life, his life, and power liberated in us. Verse 22, nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. 
And he was saying to them, take care what you listen to or how you hear. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you and more will be given you besides. For whoever has, to him more shall be given and whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away. Now, bear that in mind and let, let's return to uh, verse 14. The sower sows the word. These are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. And when they hear immediately, Satan comes and takes the word takes away the word which has been sown in them. And, and if, if he fails at that juncture, the um, assault escalates. So Jesus is saying, be careful how you hear. If you give yourself over fully to this process, if you invest yourself in it, you'll receive the word and hold fast to it and more will be given to you besides. What is that more? Understanding revelation but if you do not yield to it if you do not embrace and hold fast to it it will be taken away from you and more besides those assaults can cost us something so there is a terrific word of caution but also it should enthuse us because it is in our heart to receive more of him isn't it so he's saying listen if you will invest yourself in this process, um, that investment is going to pay off with exceptional returns. I am going to be revealed to you more fully. Uh, let's look at uh, Hebrews, please. The uh, first chapter. So what is it that we're hearing? When I, as I shared this parable, what were you hearing, first of all? You were hearing the Logos. That's the written word. That's the word which, uh, which of course, the, uh, the disciples preach. We'll look at that in just a moment. Uh, but let's look at Hebrews 1. Uh, verse 1, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. So he has spoken to us through his Son. Jesus is the Word made flesh. It's imperative, I think, that we don't allow an enormous distinction to exist in our minds between the Word, the Logos, and the living Christ. This, this, is, this serves as a path to discovering Him, but not merely discovering facts about Him, but literally encountering and experiencing Jesus. 2 Timothy 3, let's just go back a few pages. 2 Timothy 3. Verse 16, all scripture is inspired by God. It's God breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. So what you are hearing 
isn't simply the notions of men or their recollections um, uh, or, or a, a philosophy that, that they have constructed. This is the Word of God. The Logos is inspired. It is God-breathed. It is the very Word of God, a love letter to you and me. But there's something more here. Now remember, I, I, I don't want to, I'm not diminishing uh, the written word. It is essential. Romans 12, 2 uh, explains that we are to uh, not become conformed to this world, but be transformed through the renewing of our minds. By, con by continuing in the word and applying the word, our thoughts begin to conform to God's thoughts. Our ways to his ways. It's rather like learning a language, and that's important. Because when we talk about revelation knowledge, God revealing himself to us, bringing forth enlightenment concerning his word, it's possible for people to begin uh, saying, well, God, God spoke to me. And then they share with you what they believe God has said. And it flies in the face with what is written. What God reveals to us by His Spirit will always exist in perfect harmony with what, he's, uh, what is written in His Word. They, they, they will never deviate. It, there's illumination. It becomes alive to us. Jesus leaps out of the pages of Scripture and, and, and we ex literally experience Him. The other reason it's so critical to remain in the Logos is you're learning God's language so that when He does speak to you by the Spirit, you don't dismiss it. I'm, you know, often people will say, well, I, I wish the Lord would speak to me like He speaks to you. I'm certain that He is. First of all, we have to learn to distinguish His voice from among its imitators. But then we have to listen to it. Have you ever been in a, uh, uh, at, a, at a, a mixer, a cocktail party, something of that sort, where there was a room full of people and they're all chatting at once? And uh, someone wants to talk with you and you sort of have to say, okay, step a bit closer. Now, what were you saying? You're, you're trying to isolate their voice from the voices around you. When we are studying the word and meditating upon the word, we're able to not only distinguish God's voice from among its imitators, but to pick it out in a crowd. And there are many voices, John wrote. How do I isolate his voice? The more time we spend in the word of God, uh, when he speaks, we will recognize his voice. There's a sensitivity and a recognition that we acquire over time as we spend time reading the Word. But there's something more to this than simply memorizing the book. Now, just write these verses down, please. 2 Timothy 4, verse 2, and Acts 4, Acts 4 29. We don't, I don't want to take time to go to them, but this is, uh, Paul said this is the Word that we preach. It's the Logos. This is the Word we preach. In the book of Acts, this was the Word they were preaching, the Logos, the Word of God and yet now turn with me to Romans the 10th chapter there's something uh, I find remarkable uh, recorded in uh, in it in its um, 
it's nuanced, but I think it's important. Uh, Romans, the 10th chapter, verse 17. It's a verse probably uh, most of us are familiar with. So faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. So then faith comes from hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. But the Word which exists or which is recorded in verse 17 as a word is in the original text the Greek word rhema. And it is the spoken word, not the logos, not the written word. It is the spoken word. Spoken by whom? Yeah, do you, you recall the story of in Mark the fifth chapter? Jairus had come to Jesus, pled with him to return to his home to heal his daughter who was at the point of death. And Jesus agreed uh, uh, to, to return to him, uh, uh, with him rather, to his home. And they were interrupted as they returned by the woman with the issue of blood. Jesus paused, ministered to her, and then as they were about to resume their journey, a messenger came from the home of Jairus and said, hey, there's no need to bother Jesus any longer. Your little girl is dead. As soon as Jesus heard it, Mark records, he said, don't be afraid, only believe. And then they continued on their way. Jairus continued to believe. Now, I've often wondered if Peter or John had heard that out of Jesus' earshot and just said, hey, relax. It's going to be okay. Somehow I don't think it would have had the same effect. When those words fell from Jesus' lips, they ignited faith in Jairus' heart that allowed him to continue to believe despite this horrific news he had just received. And of course, a miracle ensued. The Logos helps our minds to begin thinking in terms consistent with God's ways. But it is the rhema of God that ignites faith in our hearts. We need desperately to hear these words spoken. Um, we're going to have to close here. But uh, I, I'm trying to think of where, where we can close. We didn't get to 1 Corinthians 2 or Ephesians, the first chapter again. But I think we will go to... Um, Well, I tell you, let's just go to Revelation, the third chapter. Jesus explained in John, the 14th chapter, that the Holy Spirit would be sent in his stead. And he would teach us all things. He wouldn't speak of himself, but he would speak of Jesus and he would teach us all things. And the interesting thing about it, how, how many of you would really like to have been a disciple and walked with Jesus? I just, I'm head over heels in love with Jesus. To have been able to walk with him, I, I, I can't imagine, I, though I try, what that would have been like. But, here, but here's, here's the truth about that matter. Jesus said to the disciples, he said, look, I'm going away, but I'm coming back. I'm not going to leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And then he introduces the Holy Spirit and his unique ministry. But he, he does this 
just a few verses after explaining to Thomas, who said, hey, Jesus, show us the Father, and that's enough. And Jesus said, how long have I been with you, and you still don't recognize this truth? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus said, I don't speak of myself. I speak what I've heard the Father say. I don't, I don't um, do these works, except that, that God has empowered me to do these works. Jesus was saying, God has come to you uh, in the person of the Son. And now he said to the disciples, I'm not going to leave you. I'm coming again. Essentially, uh, he, he said about the Holy Spirit uh, what, what uh, he said about himself. He had, come as the, as, uh, he had come as God in the flesh, and the Holy Spirit was going to be with us as Jesus was with the disciples with this um, uh, added degree of intimacy. He said, he will be with you and he will be in you. We can enjoy an extraordinary degree of intimacy with Jesus Christ in the person of the Holy Spirit. To have a Holy Spirit experience is to have a Jesus experience. It's to have an encounter with Him. Now, I want to explore that. Well, actually, next week we won't do that unless we want to just leave our Thanksgiving tables and come back here, which probably is not going to happen. The week following, we, we will look at that because there, is, there, there really is something important and, and exciting and life-giving in this really discovering the ministry of the Holy Spirit, I think, more fully. But I, I want you to consider this uh, this week, uh, Revelation, the third chapter, regarding Revelation. Uh, God is not indifferent. Jesus, Jesus does not work to remain aloof from us. He yearns for intimacy with each of us invites us but again as the perfect gentleman will not violate our autonomy and we see this 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 beautiful picture of a jesus who so loves us but awaits our invitation verse uh, uh, verse 20 of uh, revelation 3 behold i stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. What a beautiful picture. What a beautiful thought. Jesus is standing now at the door of our life. Gently, he's not the Gestapo, he's not the KGB, he's not going to kick the door in and burst in without invitation. He's standing at the door and gently knocking. What's he waiting for? He's waiting for you, waiting for me to open the door. And he said, when you do, I will come in and dine with you, and you with me. We don't have to convince Jesus to do this. He's yearning to reveal himself, yearning to make himself known, 
yearning for that level of intimacy. He's, he's the one waiting. We're not going to knock on heaven's door. Please let me in. Please let me in. Jesus, I want to know you better. Jesus, I want to know you better. I want to... No, he's standing at the, heart, the door of our lives, gently rapping. And we open the door. He says, I will come in and dine with you and you with me. He is eager to reveal himself, eager to make himself known. And he sent his Holy Spirit to us to make that happen. Father, thank you for your word. And I, I pray that as we consider this word, as we make it our meditation, that you would cause it to come alive in our hearts. And that we would experience more of Jesus in that. I pray that you give us understanding, Lord. So that we can simply walk these truths out. We love you so very much, Jesus. Help us to know just how profoundly you love us. In your name we pray. Amen. Well, you all have been very patient tonight. Thank you. And. Uh...